Service is always special, time together. So I spent time and study wondering what I might share that could add, add anything as we reflect on the birth of Jesus. In my own reflection, there are two things that have stuck with me over the last couple weeks, and I hope they may be meaningful for you as you celebrate Christmas this year. If you have your Bible with you, I will be reading from Isaiah chapter 9 and Luke chapter 2. Before we review the Christmas story itself, I wanted to remind us of two simple things that I hope that we all know. I want to remember that the biblical, biblical account of Jesus' birth is a story firmly grounded in history. And I want us to know that the birth of Jesus requires a response from each of us. When I was young, I remember Christian parents being concerned about something called New Age thinking. It seemed this philosophy had permeated much of the culture. Among many other things, New Age presented humanity as having been ignorant in the past and was gradually ascending into enlightenment. This, of course, runs contrary to the biblical teaching that man was created perfect and has fallen into sin and needs God's redemption. Today we encounter a different ideology in the culture, one of the major themes being postmodernism. So postmodern thinking is built upon the belief that there is no objective truth. And one great tragedy of accepting this idea is that it stops people from looking for the truth. Another problem it creates is that without an objective standard for truth, there's no solid basis for right or wrong. And you may have heard someone talk about my truth or your truth rather than the truth. A key feature of this worldview is a deep suspicion of anyone who claims to share a knowledge of truth. Postmodern thinking allows you to believe what you want as long as you don't claim that your view is any better than any other. Because of how common this thinking is becoming, it's easier for our culture to view the Christmas story as just a nice holiday with gifts and time spent with family. It seems rather odd to tell the people of Manor that the birth of Jesus is a historical event. I hope we're all grounded in the understanding of the reliability of Scripture. But we need to remember that more and more our co-workers and our neighbors might just consider the Christmas story as a parable. We might have people in our lives that view Christmas as a nice story that may have happened or not, but it matters what we are able to share with them because a parable cannot save us from our sin. So this morning I want to remind us that we celebrate a real birth in history. Early in the Bible we learn that the earth was created perfect and that man was created in God's image. And when man falls into sin, the Bible teaches us how a loving God determines to redeem his creation. 
Throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecies promising the coming of a Messiah who would deliver his people from bondage and rule with justice and righteousness forever. In Isaiah 9, we read, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people who rejoice at the harvest, and warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. <coughs> Chapter 9 foretells of a child being born that would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first three titles reference his wisdom and power and authority. And the third title, Prince of Peace, is understood as the one who would reconcile man and God. Isaiah's prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And 300 years after Isaiah, the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, would write, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. In this verse, Malachi records the message of the Lord. The first messenger who's mentioned is John the Baptist who called the people to repent as the day of the Lord was at hand. In Malachi 3, verse 1, God identifies himself as the one who is coming. Malachi comes as a prophet to the remaining Israelites after the Babylonian captivity. He rebukes the, the sins of the priests and the people of Judah, as many prophets before him. Malachi warns of coming judgment and calls the people to repent and prepare for a coming Messiah. Following Malachi, there's a 400-year period between the Old and New Testaments. I think this time of biblical silence can sometimes allow modern Christians to think of the Bible as disjointed and not cohesive. It's been viewed that the intertestamental period is a time of silence from God. But actually, God was active and involved with his people during this time as it prepared the world for Jesus' ministry. We don't have any biblical writings from this time period, 
but in historical writings, we can see how the world events would set the stage for Jesus' birth. At the end of the Old Testament, the Persian Empire is in power and will continue until Alexander the Great defeated Darius III in 331 BC. And the Greek Empire would rule Judea. The time of Greek rule would allow the Hebrew scripture to be translated into the Greek Septuagint. The Septuagint was the most widely used scripture at the time of Jesus, Jesus' life, and it's quoted often by the New Testament writers. It's interesting to consider that having the Greek language in widespread use would later aid in the spreading of the gospel. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey would conquer Palestine. Pompey's rule would be followed by Julius Caesar, who would only rule for four years before his murder. Julius Caesar would be succeeded by his nephew Octavian, who would then be known as Caesar Augustus. Under Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire experienced a comparatively peaceful time as opposed to the previous century. During this time, the Roman Empire did a great deal of building infrastructure and roads. So the birth of Jesus happens under Roman rule in a somewhat peaceful time. Both the language of the Greeks and the roads built by the Romans would contribute to his ministry and later the spread of the gospel. The New Testament begins with Matthew 1, where Matthew goes to great effort to record the genealogy of Jesus. This effort is done to verify the lineage back to Abraham, showing how Jesus fulfilled the many prophecies of the Old Testament. To the Jewish people who had long awaited a Messiah, these details would have been critical, to verify that Jesus was the long-awaited one. Then in Luke 1 we read, Many have taken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. The Old Testament prophets brought God's promise of a coming Messiah centuries before Jesus' birth. We have historical references outside the Bible that catalog the events in the years between the Testaments. The New Testament authors go to great detail to record all that happened to provide a trustworthy record. A number of years ago, the author Lee Strobel shared his story of coming to faith from a very skeptical position. He later wrote a book, uh, The Case for Christ. And if you're unsure about the reliability of the Bible's claims, you might want to read that book. In that book, Lee concluded that there is no one in ancient history who we have better recording on their life and death than Jesus Christ. 
The two points I wanted to share this morning are that Christmas celebrates a literal birth in history and that his birth requires a response. Now I'd like to read the account from Luke 2 and we'll consider how Christmas affects us. So in Luke 2, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought 
in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was then a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. In this passage, we meet Simeon. We aren't given a great amount of detail about him, we're told that Simeon is righteous and devout. In his few recorded words, Simeon reveals a great deal of knowledge that had to been revealed by God. It says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I thought consolation was an interesting word, so I checked several translations, and they all used the same word. It brings the idea of comforting in loss or sorrow. In Isaiah 9, we have already read, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The Jewish people were in need of comfort. They had been in a constant state of upheaval for centuries, finding themselves ruled by a revolving list of emperors and kings, some of whom ignored their religion and others who sought to defile it and assimilate them into the foreign cultures. Hope was running low. The religious teachers were divided between the Greek-influenced Sadducees and the devout but legalistic Pharisees. It had been 400 years since the prophet Malachi reminded them of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 9 speaks directly to the time that Jesus was born. We understand Simeon as an old man because he speaks of being able to die in peace now that he has seen the Messiah. We're given the idea of a man whose lifespan had passed, expected lifespan had passed, and he was hanging on to the promise he had received from the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him at some point in the past that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. Simeon sees a baby 
and recognizes Jesus as the salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And this was said at a time when the religious leaders were expecting a warrior who would defend them from the unjust Roman oppression. But Simeon knows this baby will offer salvation and a light to the Gentiles. The idea that the Messiah would be for all people was not part of the scriptural understanding at the time. In fact, this becomes a major issue amongst the apostles and the early church leaders in the coming decades. Simeon also tells Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and is a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus is born, it is God stepping into his creation in the most humble way as a baby in a poor family. And that baby would go on to reveal the hearts of many. And he still is. And this is where we need to consider our response. Are we like Simeon, ready to receive the gift of Jesus and respond by praising God for his goodness? I spoke earlier about the biblical teaching that after a perfect creation, man fell into sin and death. For centuries, people lived under the law, constantly reminded by the law and the prophets how they couldn't live up to God's perfect nature. Always looking forward to the promised deliverer who could rescue them from their oppression. We celebrate Christmas because when Jesus was born, it changed all the world for all people, for all time. We no longer live under the law waiting for our Savior. The birth of Jesus is God stepping into his creation and for a time living among us. And it's an event that splits history forever. So this Christmas, I'd like you to remember that we celebrate a real birth in time and that the gift of Christmas requires a response from each of us. Will we be like Simeon, ready to receive the gift of Jesus and respond in worship? So with these things in mind, I want to wish you each a Merry Christmas. Rick's going to come and lead us in a closing song.